Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. But I, I think I know, in my view at least, that you know, South Korea's enterprise strategy is more of a signaling device. It's a signaling device to signal to our like-minded partners that where we stand, where South Korea stands in the, in the current geopolitical environment. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights, and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Rory Medcalf, head of the National Security College at the Australian National University. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Today, I'm joined by some really expert visitors from the Republic of Korea to Canberra and specifically by uh, Dr. Lee Jae-hyun and Dr. Go Myung-hyun from the Asan Institute for Policy Studies. And I've found the Asan Institute over the years to be an exceptional uh, partner in the think tank uh, and research landscape when it comes to understanding Korean perspectives on strategic challenges. So uh, it's a great uh, privilege to welcome uh, both uh, Dr. Lee and Dr. Go to the podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having me. So we thought today we would uh, talk about Korean Indo-Pacific strategy, South Korea's Indo-Pacific strategy, which I think was released in December 2022. So it's five or six months old now. And what that means for the evolving strategic landscape in the region, what it means for the the contribution that South Korea can make to regional security and stability. And of course, uh, extrapolating on that for our Australian listeners, I'd love to talk a little bit about future opportunities for the relationship between Australia and, and, and Korea. Uh, so what I might do to begin with is just ask um, each of you in turn for a sense of what is the uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy that the still relatively uh, new administration um, of, uh, of President Yoon Suk-yeol is what is their Indo-Pacific strategy and what does that signify about uh, your country's ambitions in the world? I might begin actually with you, with you Jay. Um, yeah, um, as you know, the um, South Korean government has been for a, for a, for a long time dragging its feet to um, make its strategic stance clear uh, to the international community. But this Yudusong-Yeol government uh, last year announced its own Indo-Pacific strategy and it has expanded South Korea's regional foreign policy scope further. And um, it is also reflecting the growing uh, South Korean uh, community's uh, demand that South Korea has to, has to do more for 
the region and international community. Because as you know, the South Korean economy is quite big and it has got quite uh, credible military power as well. But um, for, for a long time, the Korean foreign policy and security policy has been um, um, narrowly focusing on Korean Peninsula against the North Korean threat. And um, there's kind of you know growing consensus that it's time for South Korea to expand its foreign policy scope. And the Yoon suk government in the Pacific strategy actually reflect that kind of you know, social um, demand, if you like, what do you think uh, about that, um, Dr. Go? So, yeah, I mean, I agree. Uh, clearly, it's an expression of uh, Korea trying to have a more active role in the international community. Yeah, clearly, Korea is about time for Korea to do so. It's uh, the 10th largest economy, and now Korea is no more known by its cultural exports and technology exports than the traumatic, traumatic experience of the war seven years ago. Uh, having said that, I think the, the newly announced, uh, Indo-Pacific strategy, it, it's, uh, even though the, there's a term strategy in the, in the statement, I would say it's more of a declaration, uh, declaration that, uh, the South Korea is subscribed to a certain set of norms and values, uh, which is very much welcome, uh, uh, in, in and outside of Korea. Uh, I think, uh, Korea was subscribed, subscribing to, a position of ambiguity. I think, uh, like many countries, uh, was tempted to stay outside of the, the growing intense, uh, strategic competition and rivalry between China and the United States. Uh, Korea is, uh, has this, uh, uh, it's very, uh, I would say, has this mercantilist uh, mindset that it wants to have good trade relationship with everybody and, and the growing, uh, uh, you know, uh, like a competition between two major powers uh, has made Korea feeling uncomfortable about it for a long time. So the natural response was to stay away from this uh, friction and uh, this frictious uh, rivalry. But now with the the new Yoon Suk administration, Korea, besides uh, committing more to contribute more to the international community, has he uh, wants to make its position clearer to the major actors uh, such as China and the United States. And the message that comes out of this, you know, strategy, which I read as a declaration, is that that South Korea is going to fully support the the rules based order, and then he subscribes to the to the democratic norms and values. So. Uh, even though Korea doesn't commit to, uh, uh, to what kind of action it's going to, uh, take in order to, uh, protect and, and further, uh, strengthen these, uh, norms and values, at least it's the first step, I would say. So in that sense, I would uh, define Korea's, uh, you know, Indo-Pacific strategy, both as a declaration, uh, also as a work in progress. And just for, uh, I guess, the benefit of, of listeners who perhaps um, have had better things to do than, than track the um, the evolution of multiple nations' Indo-Pacific strategies over the years, and that's that, 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 that's a reasonable life choice, I guess, mm-hmm. um, just to remind that uh, really over the last 10 to 15 years, there has been this trend towards countries in our region and globally now redefining their area of strategic interest as the Indo-Pacific, mm-hmm. as that that connected region uh, mm-hmm. across the two oceans, redefining that in terms of, uh, in many cases, navigating the shifting power balances mm-hmm. and the risks of, of confrontation and, and conflict. 
And one way of looking at that trend uh, is to say, well, it's a kind of a bandwagoning with the United States against China because, of course, the United States and, of course, in 2016, Japan were among the first countries to openly say we have an Indo-Pacific strategy. In fact, it was was Australia in its 2013 Defence White Paper that was first to reframe the region in this way uh, in a formal government policy document. But in terms of fully-fledged national strategies, yeah. uh, in many ways, uh, the Americans and, 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 the, and the Japanese have been very prominent. The Europeans, uh, the EU, um, ASEAN, Indonesia, there's a long list now of countries that are looking at the region in this way. Yeah. So what is distinctly Korean, um, I would ask each of you, <clears throat> about this strategy? It's not simply a, yeah. um, you know, a, a cut and paste of American strategy, is it? Who wants to go first? Perhaps uh, I might go to you, Dr. Lee. <laughs> Forgive me. Um, yeah, um, as you mentioned, the um, South Korea's in the post- I mean, still a lot, a lot have to be explained when it comes to South Korea's in the prospect strategy. It's still very early to know the exact the picture of the strategy. Um, as you as you mentioned, the U.S., Japan, Australia, and and Southeast Asian countries combined and European countries all have their own Indo-Pacific strategy much earlier than South Korea's Indo-Pacific strategy. But at the same time, one has to understand this uh, 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 interesting situation in South Korea. The South Korean government has been uh, under pressure coming from our northern brother, and we have this big burden in South Korea, which has been in place for 70 years. And of course, this burden has its own consequence on South Korea's shaping uh, foreign policy. So the constant threat of North Korea, effectively. Yeah. And so the um, a little bit late, I mean, South Korean uh, foreign policy has been uh, really influenced by the situation in the Korean Peninsula. So it's a bit late for South Korea to come out and announce its Indo-Pacific strategy. And still it's early stage, as Dr. Ko mentioned, the um, last December's announcement was just um, a statement or announcement, the detailed plan and strategy uh, will come uh, later, um, then we will have the, the um, clearer picture of what could be South Korea's Indo-Pacific strategy. So it's still early to say uh, what is South Korea's uh, genuine kind of you know, new and noble contribution when it comes to Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, but um, this is my personal view. And um, the if you look at the strategic uh, landscape in the region. Um, still, we have two big superpowers competing, and it's very likely that the um, the consequence of this strategic competition between the U.S. and China will shape the future regional order. And I believe the um, uh, small and medium powers in the region has to put their hands together uh, to reflect their own interest in the emerging uh, regional order. Of course, the um, countries like South Korea and Southeast Asian countries and South Asian countries, they were kind of powerless right after the World War II. So they had no choice but to accept 
the regional order shaped by the big powers. But if you look at the current uh, uh, balance of power between big powers and small and medium powers, it's not like the um, uh, 1940s or 1950s. So the, the power of the small and medium uh, countries is much bigger than before. So the, uh, uh, it is uh, just an uh, unfair demand for these small and medium countries to reflect their interest in the uh, regional order. And I believe South Korea can do some kind of a reading role to get all these small and medium countries together to raise our voice in the region. And that's... It's an important point, I think, for those of us watching from Australia, you know, when, when we look at the relative strategic weight and capabilities of countries in the region, the size of their economies, uh, you know, the level of their um, advances in technology, uh, their national security strength and military spending and so forth. I mean, South Korea figures prominently and has for many, many years. Uh, it's a middle power, but it's a, it's quite a robust middle power and it's a democracy. So it's an obvious partner in so many ways. And that's why I think for some of us over the years, there's been some frustration uh, when we look at region-wide security challenges, whether it's um, deterring uh, coercive behaviour by China or whether it's uh, stabilisation and dealing with transnational threats, that perhaps... We would like to have seen uh, Korea more more mm. active. Um, likewise, of course, with the threat of North Korea and the you know the constant uh, risks on the Korean Peninsula, of course, uh, your country has an immediate and proximate strategic priority. So, seeing this Indo-Pacific strategy is, I think, a pretty big moment of of opportunity. Uh, and and to be fair, although Australia has been, uh, if you like, acting and um, promoting. Uh, in an Indo-Pacific context for some years now, we still don't have a formally published Indo-Pacific strategy ourselves. So we need to be a little bit um, careful about what we what we say there when we say that Korea is actually late to the party because in some ways uh, you, you're just on time. Um, but I think, um, Dr. Goh, what do you think in terms of both the distinctly mm-hmm. Korean quality of this strategy and perhaps how it reflects Korea's expanding interests across the region and perhaps how it's going to translate now into to policy action. So those are, those are you know, uh, I mean, these are excellent questions. And, and I think, in a way, it brings us to the question of how to frame yeah. South Korean options uh, within the framework of, framework of the Indo-Pacific strategy. And, and, and when you try to think about the, what are the distinguishing features of the Korea's own Indo-Pacific strategy, we have to understand that this is, after all, an Indo-Pacific strategy. There are many other countries that have issued not many others, but there's still some, a few number, a few countries that issued their own Indo-Pacific strategies. And it clearly defines the space of Indo-Pacific strategies and what kind of options South Korea can have. So, uh, in that sense, I think we cannot diverge too much from the original recipe that, uh, uh, countries such as the United States and Australia, no Australia, because Australia doesn't have an, a formal Indo-Pacific strategy yet, but then there are some clear statements in that direction. Or European Union, for instance, European Union has issued its own Indo-Pacific strategy. So in a way, I think South Korea followed the path set forth by other countries before, you know, it was time for South Korea to issue its own. And I think that uh, that's clearly reflected in South Korea's Indo-Pacific strategy. And I think... uh what, uh, so, you know, so you know to understand the, uh, the, the distinguishing, uh, 
features of South Korea's own Indo-Pacific strategy, we have to uh, think, think about these components that we have seen elsewhere as well. So one is whether the uh, Korea's own Indo-Pacific strategy is going to be about containment. Uh, let's not name names, but mm. is it going to be about containment? Or at least or is it going China to be... claims to be containment. <laughs> exactly. Or is it going to be about balance, a balancing act uh, between you know different actors, different major powers? And also there's an, uh, the dilemma about what's going to take precedence here, trade or economic interest or security. And I think overall, South Korea is trying to come up with a mix of everything. Uh, it's a salad bowl, or as Koreans like to call it, a bibimbap. Mm-hmm. And, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, exactly. <laughs> So, but then, you know, to have a delicious bibimbap, you have to come up with the right amount of, uh, you know, like uh, each component in the mix. And I think that's what the South Koreans are trying to do. At least this is, a, you know, the first attempt at doing so. So we see some uh, emphasis on prosperity, essentially pointing towards, uh, you know, uh, stabilis, uh ongoing or development of trade relations, uh, presumably including China. But also there's an emphasis on norms and values and uh, an openness. And I think that this is clearly uh, uh, signaling to the United States that uh, South Korea is siding with the West when it comes to implementing those norms and values in this region. So uh, overall, you know, it really is in the eye of the beholder whether this attempt or this uh, effort is a successful one or not. And in my view, it's actually uh, pretty successful. And I think uh, I've seen... Uh, many experts who agree with me that uh, for the first attempt, this is a very successful one. So I think uh, South Korea's uh, Indo-Pacific strategy is essentially about balancing, it's striking on a balancing act. Uh, that's a, a balancing act between many different sources of pressure that the country is subject to. And what figures largely uh, in this, uh, this paper, uh, this Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, which I would call it a big elephant in the room, and as my colleague Dr. Lee mentioned, is North Korea. Hmm. I think North Korea acts as a constraint on South Korean options. And the reason why South Korea then has to resort to a balancing act, and instead of committing fully into a more clear uh, Indo-Pacific, stra- Indo-Pacific uh, stance, is because uh, while South Korea needs the security cooperation uh, from the United States, uh, with the United States, sorry, but also it needs cooperation with the, uh, with the Chinese when it comes to stabilizing uh, the North Korean uh, the challenge that we face. So I think uh, this is the balancing act that South Korea is trying to strike. And I think uh, this is a central feature of the Indo-Pacific strategy that's going to continue uh, uh, for the foreseeable future. But you may have the rhetorical balance right or the declaratory mm-hmm. balance right in the strategic document uh, because it does have a bit of everything mm-hmm. in it. But of course, the question for policy makers and foreign observers now is what Seoul does. Um, so in terms of implementation of strategy and perhaps fleshing it out with strategies for the different sub-regions and the different partners mm. of the Indo-Pacific, uh, there are questions about what does the relationship with Japan look like? What does the relationship with China look like? What can we expect more from or what can we expect in terms of more activism uh, by Korea from in, in, in Southeast Asia or in the Pacific or or South Asia? Where, where should we go first on that? Um, so, uh, Dr. Lee, where would, where would you begin if you started breaking down the strategy into the, the elements, the components, the steps that are, that are already being undertaken? Um. The, according to the South Korea's in the prospect strategy, there are a few uh, sub-regions uh, divided. First, uh, North Pacific, and it, of course, includes Korean Peninsula, Northeast Asia, and the United States as well. 
And then we have ASEAN or Southeast Asia uh, subregion and South Asia, Oceania, and Europe. Even it includes Latin America. And They're all the, stakeholders in this region, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Of course, the um, on the first region, North Pacific, um, the Yoon year government was trying hard to uh, restrengthen Korea-U.S. military alliance, and um, the the two leaders uh, announced what they call Washington uh, uh, consensus the other day, and it is uh, uh, moving smoothly. And on the other front, in the North Pacific, is Japan. Uh, as you, uh, as you know, South Korea and Japan has uh, have troubled relations in the past of, uh, couple of decades, and um, this government is quite determined to fix that relation. And uh, so far, it has made some uh, progress in that. So uh, the government has done these two quite uh, uh, important jobs. And on Southeast Asia, the government recently announced another initiative which succeed New Southern Policy, what we call uh, uh, Korea's uh, Korea ASEAN Solidarity Initiative or CASI. Yeah, with that, the government is pushing uh, its uh, own policy towards Southeast Asia, and I believe the government is not quite there to find a strategy, a detailed strategy toward Oceania, South Asia, or the other region. And I really hope that the Yusungar government come out with its own strategy to the, the remaining uh, regions. We have to wait and see what kind of a strategy that the government will come out. But um, um, the Korea's relation with the big powers uh, surrounding Korean Peninsula, like U.S., China, and Japan, is uh, looks quite clear. Uh, strengthening alliance with the United States, fixing relation with Japan, and drawing a kind of a line between Korea and China. The South Korea is uh, uh, talking uh, strongly against uh, against uh, China's economic coercion and so on. So that's quite clear. And um, what is in question is what sort of a partnership and relationship that South Korea uh, and particularly the government will build with uh, partners like Australia, uh, New Zealand, Pacific Island countries, South Asia, and even Southeast Asian countries. Still, there's a big question mark, and I wish we can see uh, some uh, plans for those regions in the coming months. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience 
and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. Well, you're, you're both visiting Australia, and I certainly hope that uh, in your many conversations around this country, you're putting together a really uh, rich set of options for precisely that kind of practical cooperation. When we think about Indo-Pacific strategy in this country, uh, which, which I think has been articulated in, in, in other ways, such as through foreign, foreign policy and defence policy statements and white papers and updates and so forth over the years... Uh, most recently, the so-called Defence uh, Strategic Review that the Australian government's put out, we do end up trying to break it down into terms of, well, what are the practical steps that we need to take? Who are our partners and how can we build a kind of solidarity with, with, with middle powers and especially with democratic middle powers? So I think there is immense opportunity now to work with both of our countries in, in shaping what this role looks like in the Pacific, for example, uh, you know, if I look at the potential that the Republic of Korea brings to the region, uh, when we're looking at, on the one hand, full spectrum strategic competition, including technology, including uh, narrative and influence, uh, economics, as well as obviously the, you know, the military dimension. So many countries in the region are looking for partners in technology, partners in development assistance, um, options really, so that they're not uh, relying on a, uh, a Chinese model where effectively uh, investment and, and, and business relations uh, and development assistance comes with political strings attached and compromises sovereignty, but nor are they wanting to go all the way with effectively um, a, uh, a highly confrontational approach that I don't think the Biden administration is undertaking now, but which some would say the United States may move towards in future, especially if we see um, a uh, another Trump or Trump-like administration. So I guess that's a long way of saying that uh, South Korea is quite an attractive partner for a lot of countries, I think, in the region and seeing you know the great pragmatism uh, in, for example, the uh, the building of better relations with Japan uh, that your president has pursued, seeing the, the hard-headedness of the way in which uh, South Korea is working the relationship mm. with the United States to, to achieve greater reassurance uh, in, in a deterrence sense. You know, I think there, these are really positive signals Mm-hmm. I would ask a little bit more, if you don't mind, turning to some of those relationships. Let's look at the United States for a moment. Um, where do you see that, um, I guess, that defence relationship going from here and is it going to be sufficient to manage, for example, the um, the reports we occasionally hear about interest in a nuclear weapons mm-hmm. capability, a, you know, a South Korean nuclear weapons capability for your own defence. Mm-hmm. Um, how how much progress are we seeing in that relationship? I might go back. Um, oh, back if I'm allowed, I wanted to yeah. like, uh, comment on your, you know, your yeah. earlier comments. Before Please. the question on nuclear issues came up, it's about really how to, you know, we approach or, or, or actually, I'll take that back. It really depends on how we conceptualize the South Korea's Indo-Pacific strategy. I think there's a tendency to view South Korea's Indo-Pacific strategy as a framework. Yeah. It's just a framework, and then, you know, there are missing parts here and there, but essentially it's a framework which is going to dictate what kind of options South Korea is going to take going forward. 
But I, I think, you know, in my view at least, as you know, South Korea's independent strategy is more of a signaling device. It's a signaling device to signal to our like-minded partners the where we stand, where South Korea stands in the, in the current geospatial, geopolitical environment. So in that sense, it's, uh, you know, it's more abstract. And since it's more of a signaling device rather than a framework, mm. there are missing pieces here and there that are not only, uh, so it's not coalescing organically and then, uh, and then creates uh, at the end, uh, of say like a uh, tangible framework that people can refer to. I think that that's the, that's the dilemma that experts have in defining South Korea's Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, but, it doesn't mean that, that, you know, this is the end of South Korea's you know, enterprise strategy, that there's no potential for development. On the contrary, I think that there's a lot of potential for further development. And I think how we, you know, like a change, like a, you know, like a go beyond this simply, uh, simple, you know, signaling device to a full-fledged strategic framework that's going to allow South Korea to have a truly global, uh, strategy, uh, I think it's a historical one in that sense that I don't think South Korea ever had a truly global strategy uh, since its founding. We had an alliance with the United States that undergirded uh, a lot of our policy options and strategic options, but then we didn't have a multilateral one. And in a way, the enterprise strategy can be the basis for that one. And But I think uh, how we evolve this framework will depend on oh, like, evolve this, you know, signaling device into a, a proper framework will depend on what kind of partnership we have with our like-minded partners. So it, if Australia comes up with a, uh, with a, you know, concept of uh, security, I mean, sorry, energy security cooperation or alliance with South Korea, I think that's going to uh, fill in uh, that part of a framework that, that's currently missing in the South Korea's Indo-Pacific strategy. The alliance with the United States, for instance, so we can go back to that uh, uh, very important, uh, I would call it a strategic asset that South Korea has. The alliance with the United States will be the foundation for our global strategy. Whether we name it Indo-Pacific strategy or something else doesn't really matter. Because, uh, you know, uh, I think when I was referring earlier to this balancing act between you know, China and the United States sounded like I was uh, a balancer or like I was kind of a, you know, like a equidistant between yeah. Beijing and Washington. And I can, that, I, I can sense that's not what you that's were not driving the, at. Well, yeah. That's not the sense I would try to convey. I, on the contrary, I think uh, uh, I'm a big fan of a strategic clarity when it comes to, especially in an environment like this in Asia these days, where you have to take sides and uh, you have to be c- very clear who are your opponents or who are your friends. So I think... Uh, uh, well, the reason why South Korea uh, might sound a little bit ambiguous here and there in its strategic statements is because uh, it's because you know they uh, at the end of the day the answer for South Korea or the main option for South Korea is very clear it's the alliance with the United States uh, in the, it's, uh, uh, and then I think at the same time there are some uh, fears and some corners of the South Korean society that this alliance with the United States can be too limiting uh, then we can have you know because you know alliance provides us a you know, like in a way, uh, uh, security, not just in a literal uh, security, but security in our actions, in our options, but at the same time, it can constrain the space of our actions. But it also means that it prevents us from making wrong choices. Uh, so, so I think uh, the dilemma for South Korean policymakers, how to reconcile this with a more global, more multilateral strategic framework. So in that sense, I think the, Indo- the Indo-Pacific strategy that the South Korean government right now is developing. I, I would say they are developing it right now as we speak. And I think uh, the dilemma for them is to how to make this framework uh, less about limiting our options, but more about you know like expanding our potential. Yeah, yeah, um, and it is a, it, it's a real, as you say, signaling device about about South Korean agency. You're exactly. here, 
and and you're willing to to act, I guess, for for the collective good as far as I can tell. Exactly, exactly. So that's the reason why I think it's very important again to emphasize uh, how our partners and allies uh, explain or like, you know, describe uh, their objectives and uh, wish list uh, that they have uh, about South Korea. And then I think that's going to inform our options for the future. So it's very important to have a dialogue like this with our like-minded partners. I, I, so I, earlier, I, I was um, pushing a little bit on the um, uh, on the nuclear issue <laughs> and, and the deterrence issue. I wonder if either of you would be able to elaborate oh, on that. I'd be happy to talk about that too. <laughs> Please go yeah. ahead. So uh, I think um, the nuclear issue in the Korean South Korean context is. Uh, I think we move beyond the deterrence issue. I think uh, we have the you know very strong conventional alliance with the United States. Uh, the conventional superiority of the alliance, uh, vis-a-vis North Korea is, uh, is overwhelming. So I think North Korea is very much deterred. But then I think what really is problematic for South Korea is the fact that North Korea has ramped up its nuclear capabilities so much in such a short span of time that, uh, the perception of, or the concern about the nuclear threat from North Korea has outpaced, uh, you know, at least the perception of the, uh, conventional superiority that the South Korea and the United States both enjoy, uh, against North Korea. So I think, uh, this gap of, you know, the perception of the threat outgrowing, outpacing, the, the position of assurance is the key dilemma that uh, the policymakers in Seoul or Washington share. So that's why assurance rather than deterrence is the key word right now uh, to describe the alliance relationship between Washington and Seoul. And I think uh, the recent uh, uh, you know, declaration um, or agreement, uh, the so-called uh, Washington Declaration uh, signed off by both President Yoon and President Biden uh, as an outcome of the, the summit uh, last month, uh, you know, uh, points us in that direction. I think, uh, nuke, uh, and then the, the part of the, the major, uh, achievement, I would say, of the Washington Declaration was the creation of the Nuclear Consultative Group, uh, or NCG. And then, and the NCG is, uh, is a major step forward that signals again to South Korea and elsewhere that, uh, and other countries that, that the United States fully shares the South Korea's perceptional threat coming from North Korea. Because, you know, to, Understand this issue, uh, United States, uh, was very rational about this issue. So they discounted the assurance problem and they only focused on the deterrence problem. And then when it comes to deterrence, you know, there's a widespread agreement, even among South Koreans, that the United States was bringing to the table overwhelming superiority to deter North Korea from attacking the South. But then when it comes to the assurance, the United States was being, uh, you know, didn't want to focus on the psychological aspect of it. And, but then with the NCG or the Washington Declaration, what the United States is signaling to South Korea, also to North Korea, is that finally United States and South Korea see eye to eye when it comes to the perception of threat coming from North Korea. And this, in order to reassure the South Korean public, especially, you know, United States has to bring to the table a nuclear component, whether this is an abstract commitment to use nuclear weapons in case of a nuclear attack by North Korea or a factual one, doesn't really matter. Is the, the, the mayor mention of the nuclear, uh, in overall assurance package provided to South Korea is going to go a great, uh, you know, great lengths to reassure the South Korean public. So, um, Jay, I'm wondering whether you want to elaborate on the deterrence question or maybe talk a little bit more about what we can expect from, uh, the Korean strategy and Korean, 
uh, policy in, in, in the years ahead. Countries that are looking for, like Australia, that are looking for stability in the Indo-Pacific, that are looking to limits to China's coercive power, but want this to happen in such a way that we can safeguard regional prosperity. What, what do you anticipate? Well, I'm I'm not I'm not an expert on the um, nuclear issue or Korean Peninsula, but um, what I can tell you is that future trajectory of Korea's Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, the as far as as far as I understand, there is a sort of a big debate going on within Korean society. On the one hand, in, um, the, we have this big uh, issue in the Korean Peninsula, the North Korean threat. And um, uh, this uh, group of people still argues that we don't have the luxury to redirect our uh, resource and energy for the other countries or other regions because this is a life or death issue in the Korean Peninsula. So we can't lose our uh, resource and energy for the shake of other regions or for, for, uh, to build partnership with other countries in the region. But at the same time, there is a growing trend within Korean society that the, um, Korea is big enough, uh, to do its expected role in the region. We have to build a stronger partnership with other countries like Australia or Southeast Asia or South Asian countries and, you know, international community is looking at South, East, uh, South Korea to do more progressive role in the region. If we don't meet that kind of uh, expectation, South Korea uh, cannot claim itself as a middle power. So these two uh, uh, competing ideas are still there. And the former is uh, still uh, uh, is dominating sort of the, the established, and the late latter is growing, uh, especially among the young generation, I believe. And um, so, younger um, Koreans are more interested in playing a role in the country, playing a role beyond North Asia. Yeah, I, I, be, I believe so. So, the um, in in the coming years, that I I, I hope that the latter voice would win um, in the Korean com- uh, Korean society. And um, I hope the South Korea to do more uh, or expected role in the region to uh, strengthen rule-based order uh, and, and things like the human rights and democracies. Look, two questions before we begin to wrap up. One is about the political sustainability of this more active role um, across the Indo-Pacific, a role that is part of, I guess, the the balancing architecture of the region. Uh, you know, we've got a conservative government in Korea now that's adopted this uh, Indo-Pacific strategy. We've seen significant changes in foreign policy, as I've seen it, between changes in government in Seoul over over the years. Um, I've even heard uh, researchers say that there are effectively two strategic cultures in in <laughs> South Korea, uh, and that you know they're held very differently by the two uh, major sides of of, of politics. Um, interestingly, in the Australian context, although we've had a change of government, there's been quite a lot of continuity mm-hmm. below the surface in the national security settings, even if the public presentation and the rhetoric uh, is different and, and, and probably more disciplined now by the, the, the new, relatively new government. So how do you build 
political sustainability into a more active uh, regional and global um, role by your country. Any any thoughts? Yeah, sure. I mean, if I'm allowed to go ahead uh, first. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think uh, I think you know, like if you just take a snapshot of time in the Korea's uh, foreign policy history, so to speak, uh, you see a lot of disagreement or even extreme disagreement between two polar camps. Uh, we can call it one part and one camp progressive and the other camp conservative. And so, but then if you just the snapshot of it at present at a given time, it looks like the two camps are far apart from each other. But if you look at the trend over time, the history of the discussion or debate going on between the two sides, I think we are seeing the emergence of consensus. And I think uh, this is a very much um, a welcome change because uh, if you compare to well, the, the level of policy discussion that was taking place 20 years ago and now, there's a very important change. And that, that change is actually uh, the consensus and the need for the alliance with the United States. So if we go back 20 years ago, uh, there's a clearly a very significant opposition to the idea of South Korea uh, having very strong alliance with the United States. Yeah. And then that was uh, especially in the aftermath of the, the end of the Cold War. Uh, it looked like uh, the alliance with the United States was very much of an artifact or a relic of the Cold War. So therefore, South Korea had to move, uh, move, move on or move away from that. But now, 20 years uh, since then, you know, clearly there's a consensus from both sides that we need to have a very strong alliance relationship with the United States. So, uh, you know, it, having that in mind, the, the, the present day's challenge or where the, the area in which there's uh, the biggest difference between the two sides, the political sides in Korea, is about our relationship with Japan. And so one side, the conservatives especially, they, they advocate a rapid approachment with mm. Japan as soon as possible because after all, the two countries are democratic, uh, advanced industrial, industrialized nations. Therefore, we sh- and they are, you know, they're next to each other. So that's a clear interest in common when exactly, it comes to so, uh, Chinese power, for example. Exactly. Also, you know, the, 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 there's an economic interest too. You know, we need to expand our trade with each other so that we can, uh, maximize the synergy effect having, uh, this geographic closeness. Uh, uh, but then there's uh, the progressive, uh, the progressive side in South Korea who, you know, mentioned uh, the historical issues, uh, or historical grievances that the South Korea has with, with Japan. So, but then I think that's the reason why, because I rely on the history of change and the political, political discussion in Korea, uh, since the turn of the century in 20 years ago, we have seen that uh, a debate that was very polarizing, uh, very extreme sometimes, which uh, has gradually uh, improved and then uh, developed into a consensus. And I'm hoping that the same thing will happen with Japan. So I think uh, I, I share with Dr. Lee's uh, cautious optimism about the future. Mm. I think the future generation of Koreans will be much more open-minded about our approach towards Japan. And so 20, 20 years from now, I think... Uh, uh, you know, uh, we you know remember the today as if uh, the time when you know South Korea and Japan uh, couldn't agree on the very simple things, and that was unbelievable. But then, and in the future, we think it's only natural for the two countries to to be close and develop their relationship further. Doctor, yeah, Doctor Lee. Yep. Um. Um. On some details, we um, Doctor Ko and I um, tend to disagree, but overall direction, we uh, fully. Uh, uh, in, uh, uh, we have the same, uh, kind of, you know, um, uh, future, um, prediction. Um, the, as Dr. Ho mentioned, there are two, uh, 
competing uh, political sections in South Korea, and seemingly they have two uh, quite different uh, uh, directions. But that is not really true. Uh, These uh, political uh, forces in South Korea, anyway, they have to uh, reflect what people, uh, South Korean people, want. And as I mentioned in the previous episode, the future generation is more in support of Korea's bigger role in the region and global community, which in this government is symbolized by the global or pivotal state. Um, so I believe in, in the long term, South Korean government will go in that direction. If you look at what Moon Jae-in government has done on the uh, New Southern policy, initially when the Moon Jae-in government announced uh, New Southern policy, people were wondering why why Southeast Asia, what, uh, what at this point, why ASEAN is so important for South Korea. But with five years of New Southern policy, South Korean people now realize South, Southeast Asia is very important for South Korea's economic and strategic interest. And Yoon Suk-yeol government announced in the Pacific strategy, and I believe it moved sort of Korea's uh, foreign policy direction a little bit, and uh, it set kind of a new boundary for the next government to to move around. If it's from this, the same ruling party or from the opposition party, the next administration has to move around within the boundaries set by this government. So um, in the long term, South Korea will go in that direction to speak uh, loud and strong in support of rule-based order and um, uh, in support of the Pacific region and so on. So I promised that we'd speak a little bit about uh, Australia-South Korea relations before we conclude our, our conversation. And if you look even at the statistics in trade and investment, if you look at the sectors of our economies where there's significant and growing reliance, if you look at the uh, really the, uh, the imperative of the energy transition, uh, and if you look at critical technologies, there are so many areas of complementarity and partnership. And yet, there's still a sense, I think, in both countries that we're not doing enough. So I just wondered if either of you could each uh, conclude with a few thoughts on what you'd like to see from the uh, relationship between Canberra and Seoul and between our two societies. I'll go. I'll start with you again, actually, uh, Dr. Lee. Yeah, just briefly. Um, the already government announced in the prospect strategy and the government is moving in that direction. And um, if I'm not wrong, the government is very much interested in uh, cooperating with Quad countries. And um, I'm not quite sure if there's any official sort of application process in the Quad or not, but the government has a very strong um, um, you know, interest in that. Uh, if South Korea cannot be um, kind of a member of, of, of Quad, then what it can do is to cooperate in the uh, military cooperation under the umbrella of Quad. There are quite a number of working groups, and uh, South Korea can join those uh, working groups or military cooperation. That's one of the ways to build uh, uh, cooperation with Australia. But uh, before that, South Korea has to um, overcome its own um, uh, uh, sort of a problem 
that the um, for the for the long time Korean government has been looking at the big powers rather than uh, regional powers. The first task is to overcome the kind of a mindset. Yeah. Okay. What do you think? No, no, I fully agree. Uh, and I think uh, there's a natural complementarity between the two countries. And we have seen the potential of that in the economic relationship. And then well, we know that uh, uh, South Korea relies on Australia for uh, as a source of uh, uh, not just some major commodities, but also for critical minerals, and that that those are the those are the commodities, the powers, the South Korean economic engine. So, but then what I think are the uh, the part of our relationship that doesn't live up to the potential is in in sharing our strategic thinking. I think uh, uh, there's uh, this is a state mind state of mind issue. I think uh, both South Korea and Australia see as uh, perceive each other to be far away from each other, and then that this is not quite true. I mean, so I mean ge- uh, geographically and in geospatial sense, uh, Australia is far closer to us than the European countries. But then we see a lot more uh, interchange and I'm sorry, exchanges between Korea and the European countries than between Korea and Australia. And I think uh, this is a this is an issue. I think a problematic issue. So I think uh, when it comes to uh, further developing our you know uh, uh, relationship, I think uh, we need to have um, more. Um, sharing of a strategic mindset between the two countries. I think uh, there's a lot more to learn from, especially from the Korean side, from the Australians, uh, uh, strategists and the thinkers and researchers. I think uh, there's uh, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, insights that we can, uh, we can gather and also let us the big brains from. Well, I think that means we're hoping to see you and your colleagues in Australia more often and Australian researchers and strategists making uh, the, you know, the re- as you say, the re- relatively short uh, journey to, to Seoul, but also, I guess, exchanges among our uh, government agencies, our intelligence agencies, mm. exchanges yep. of, of thinking, um, parliamentary exchanges, perhaps. Mm. Um, look, I will tie up the conversation there just with a couple of observations, noting that in uh, researching my own book on the Indo-Pacific, uh, where I started to collect historic maps of the region to look at how uh, various societies imagined the the regional environment going back many hundreds of years. One of the oldest maps mm. uh, that I included in my book was actually a Korean map, the Kangnido map from, I think, the early 1400s. And it suggested that you know, as far back as then, mm. there were uh, there were observers, thinkers, scholars, uh, decision makers uh, in Korea mm-hmm. who were looking actually at a much larger regional exactly. landscape, yep. extect, you know, extending really to mm. South Asia, even even to Africa. So, you know, in a way, this is um, what's old is new again, <laughs> and uh, we've come full circle. Um, thank you very much for joining me in a conversation about uh, South Korea's Indo-Pacific strategy, and I look forward to further conversations. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so and likewise. <laughs>